Hello, my name is Rebecca Haas, and I'm the Director of Community Engagement for Pacific Opera Victoria. Welcome to our December Listening Party podcast. Here we are in the holiday season. It's December, and in any other year, we would be busy preparing for parties, gatherings, and musical events. Messiah, Nutcracker, We'd have church choir concerts, school concerts. We'd be hearing wandering carolers. There would be music everywhere. But this year is different. With the pandemic and its second wave across the world, many provinces in Canada have placed restrictions on gatherings, and certainly there are no performances currently allowed with live audiences. Here at Pacific Opera, we're just finishing filming an opera, which will feature one of my guests today. Tracy Dahl. This opera, Alice in the Garden, will be available online for viewing in the new year. I'm recording this on December 3rd, and as of today, my other two guests, who were to give a series of live performances of a Christmas recital in the Bauman Centre, which now will only be a live stream. I'm speaking of tenor Benjamin Butterfield and his wife, soprano Anne Grimm. If it were a normal year, I wouldn't be able to talk to any of these three well-known Canadian artists. This is a very busy time of year for singers. Normally, they're traveling around the globe, bringing their voices to Christmas concerts in far-flung corners. This year is very different for audiences and singers. Since we can't hear them sing live this year, I thought it might be nice to hear their reflections on music and the holiday season and hear some stories from their careers. What are their favorite concert memories? What's their worst concert memory? This is all coming up in today's podcast, so let's get started. My first conversation was filled with laughter, as you will hear. My name is Benjamin Butterfield. Uh, I'm a tenor and a teacher at the University of Victoria, and, um, and it's Christmas time. And I am with... Amna Grimm. And I happen to be married to Benjamin Butterfield. <laughs> And we live in Victoria, which is wonderful. But I'm actually from the Netherlands. I was born in Geldrop and <laughs> lived for 18 years in Amsterdam. Did a lot of singing. And I'm, I'm happy to now be in Victoria with Ben and our two girls. We started our conversation with some talk about the difference between a Netherlands Christmas and a Canadian Christmas. First of all, I think it is, there's a big difference in Christmas in North America versus Christmas in, in the Netherlands. I, I wanted to say Europe, but I can't speak for Europe. But it's certainly in the Netherlands, Christmas is very much about coming together with friends and family, sharing a beautiful dinner or a beautiful brunch, something like that. And the whole present thing is not a big thing at all. I don't know how that is these days, but in my upbringing, that wasn't a thing at all. And we would just make music. We would always sing our Christmas songs. We would wake up with my favorite Christmas disc <laughs> that my dad would put on. And, and the first what was thing it called? What's it called? Zingen bij de Kerstboom. <laughs> it was the title of the disc. <laughs> and it started with church bells. And I remember lying in my bed and hearing those church bells in our home because that was the start of that disc. And we did that every year on Christmas morning and I loved it. And then we, when we grew up, we started to have a new tradition. We started to go to the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam every December 25th. 
to the Kerst Matinee. And that was the Concertgebouw Orchestra with uh, various conductors. But the first times we would go was with Bernard Heiting. And these, these soloists singing, it was always, it was either the Christmas Oratorium or Mahler symphonies, Bruckner symphonies. I remember that as, as magical Christmas afternoons. And then from there we would go to dinner and that was our Christmas. That's but how I grew up. But so, but there was Christmas, but then there was Sinterklaas. Well, indeed, if I say that Christmas wasn't very much about presents, I should say that the tradition in, in the Netherlands very much is Sinterklaas is the, is the holy man from Spain. He comes <laughs> on December 5th to celebrate his birthday. And to celebrate his birthday, he wants to share. So he comes with his white horse and he walks over the roofs of all the houses and his, his assistant pops through the chimney and puts presents in all the shoes that are put down underneath the chimney. And of course we put carrots and sugar cubes down for the horse. So the next morning you have a present and your carrot or your sugar cube is, is gone. That's where we get our presents on December 5th. And you also, and you have this, the Sinterklaas poem. The Sinterklaas poem? Don't you do a poem? Don't oh yes, we, we, we receive a poem, absolutely. And it speaks about how you were this, this past year. Were you naughty? Were you sweet? And, and if you were not doing so well, if you were a little naughty, um, the assistant of Sinterklaas might just come and put you in his bag and transfer you back to Spain. Take you to Spain. Yes. And, and even worse, there is a little um, branch that he might beat you up with. <laughs> <laughs> and then the best part is that when you do well in your workplace in Holland, you get a bonus by being sent to Spain for a holiday. So that really, that throws you off. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were naughty, you go in the bag and you are transferred back to Spain. That was the threat. If you were good, that would be a present. But the idea of those poems is something that where where it's you are seen like that. That poem is is said. Oh, yeah. We Cinderclass sees you and he knows what you've been going through. He knows what you've done well at. He knows what you need some help with. It's it's sort of a weird psychotherapy session on December fifth that that suddenly you get everything put into perspective and you're sort of seen and you you feel good about things that you've done and you realize what you got to work a little bit harder with and. So it's kind of a, I think it's a fascinating, beautiful tradition to, to on a piece of paper that Sinterklaas sees you and he remarks on your, your accomplishments and what you could work harder on. And so then do you it, do this for your girls? Uh, every year on December 5th. And I reflect on, on their year for sure. And I make one for Ben as well. And I, I do one with the, it's the English Sinterklaas. <laughs> And it adds a poem, right? So it has to rhyme. So there's all this hilarity of trying to explain, you know, see somebody in, in rhyme. And you know that it comes from me, but we sign off with Sinterklaas. It's a good tradition. How many of you are suddenly inspired to write a Sinterklaas poem for someone in your household? What a lovely tradition. And how fun to imagine creating these in rhyme as well. I love that. But... Let's get to the music. What was Anne's musical tradition from Christmas as a child? I have the best memories, and still actually every year, highlight of Christmas, sitting with a community in a 
packed church and the church bells and the warmth and the candlelights and then singing together. I find that really, whatever your religion is, doesn't matter. That singing together for me is, a, is, a, is an absolute heartwarming thing that, that belongs to Christmas for me. Many of us will have similar memories of singing together. For many years, I was a section leader at Islington United in Toronto. And I remember the feeling of that still. The church filled to capacity, the candlelight, the excitement in the choir loft as we prepared to sing this very special program that was put together with such thought every year. It's magical. Ben actually started his singing on Christmas at a young age, running from performance to performance, and he started right here in Victoria at a very famous landmark. I got tied up with the Empress Carolers at the Empress Hotel. And before I'd finished high school, um, you know, I'd hooked up with Selena James with singing teachers and all the stuff. And Richard Margeson was all involved in this little event and Ingrid Attrott. And uh, I was invited in eventually to be part of this um, sort of Renaissance era uh, uh, Christmas pageant of, of tumblers and presenting the Yule log and, and declaiming the, that, the, um, that the Yule log has arrived and it's the beginning of Christmas and, and people would pay lots of money to come and be at the Empress Hotel and watch these people walk around in Elizabethan, Elizabethan, Elizabethan costumes, not Renaissance, Elizabethan. Uh, Richard Margeson looked like King Henry VIII. It was absolutely fantastic in his sort of <laughs> old velvet hat with a sort of tunic and, and Ingrid looked like, like uh, I don't know, Queen Elizabeth I with sort of huge headpiece. And, and, and we'd all wander around, it was an octet and we would do uh, the Empress Carol Tees. And it was sort of a concert and people would buy these Empress packages and, and we'd walk in parading about singing here we come, a wassailing among the leaves so green, and blah, blah, blah. And then on Christmas Eve, it was this big pageant. And then we do another Christmas tea. And then I'd go straight up to go to the church to sing. And then I'd get home exhausted because the fact is the next morning, I had to be up at six in the morning to go back to the Empress because we paraded through the hallways to wake up everybody dressed in our outfits. So for, for many, many years of me as a sort of late teenager, maybe I maybe well maybe like 17 on for years that was my Christmas and it was it was about Elizabethan <laughs> dress in singing Christmas carols to all these tourists who came up and then go home and then have lunch and then go back to the Empress and then so it wasn't so much a it, it was about a lot of people and about a lot of fun and a lot of things but it wasn't so much about being home and and putting your feet up. When you did get home to put your feet up, that was a real bonus. I'm just sort of curious, what was your sort of most, your party piece for Christmas season? Are you a Messiah girl or where did you get dragged musically? I, I'm, <laughs> dragged. I'm not at all a Messiah girl. I'm very <clears throat> much a Weihnachts oratorium, Christmas oratorium girl. That was what we did. And, and it all started in joining the Amsterdam Baroque Choir, which was Tom Koopman's uh, choir next to the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra. And I was still a student at the Zweling Conservatorium in Amsterdam. 
and it was absolutely thrilling for us students to be to get the opportunity to join this choir chamber choir for for each voice and we were suddenly put next to this fantastic orchestra uh, and we would do, do all these, these, the Christmas Oratory, the Matthew Passion, the St. John, Mozart Rhythm, all these, these, we would call it iron repertoire. Uh, but of course, December, it started with us touring the Christmas Oratory with Tom Koopman. You learn, you learn that repertoire, you learn the, the how it is to pace yourself singing-wise, to do 10 concerts in a row through December. That's the other thing that we that doesn't really happen anymore so much in this world. But we used to have these tours and travel through the day and do evening concerts. And then the next day back in the train or back in the plane It was very tiring. But boy, I loved it. But it was all Christmas oratorium or chamber music, Baroque music with a group that I sang with a lot, La Sfera Armoniosa. Um, yeah absolutely wonderful i i was probably always home for christmas in that time because i worked up till christmas day so how many shows would you would you say you did for the christmas season what what are we looking at are we looking at like there's one a day is it sort of like you do 20 in the month you do 10 in the month like how many how many do you think you were doing well it's funny rebecca that you asked that question because um, related to this to this interview, I dived in a in my <laughs> calendars of that time. And I, I look at it and I think this is crazy. I would never tell my students to to book their calendars so full. <laughs> How did I do that? Yeah, I I I I planned it really back to back, which was probably not all too wise, but I was young and crazy. Ah, young and crazy with a December filled with concerts and music. It sounds like a pretty great kind of crazy to me. So much music and so many performances. I asked Anne, do any stand out in her memory? I think, if I think back, just for example, the Christmas Oratorium, if I think back about us in these big cathedrals, I think about Milan is sort of one that stands out because of, I think... Yeah, we, we, we would go there and it was so magical to be in Italy. And, and, and again, the warmth and the light of these big churches, so packed with people and just the singing. I said to Ben, the trumpet, the trumpet in the Christmas Oratorium. To me, that was an enormous highlight. I, I found that so festive and so, um, I don't know, a reminder of what it's all about. I think. <laughs> so that is something that, that really stands out for me. Um, but also just the ambience of doing concerts in that particular time of, of year, where people maybe take a break from their routine, from their, from their usual days. They, they dress up and they walk out even to the small venues, the little churches in the little villages. I love that too. And, and just coming together and enjoy art, enjoy music, enjoy doing something that, that lifts the spirit rather than our daily routine. I think that that really is what stands out for me. That's so beautiful. I wish I had grown up in the Netherlands and got to sing in Milan. 
I know <laughs> that choir. I feel totally ripped off right now where I went. I was at Peterborough at the United Church singing the Messiah. It's just not the same. <laughs> As Anne talked about all these amazing experiences, Ben noticed one of the great differences between the European career and the North American career. In that that European setting where indeed you get in the train, you can also you can kind of be home to go to bed after a gig in some place. You're it's for the same kind of calendar setup to be based out of Toronto at the time, you are going to fly to you hope that the gigs you have are going to be Toronto, Montreal, Detroit, um, maybe Halifax, a, a quick extension. But when you suddenly find you're going to San Francisco, back to Toronto, over to Strasbourg, come back for Denver, uh, go to Houston, out to Victoria, you sort of think, well, that's a lot of time on the plane, but it's still just a couple of gigs in a row. You'll remember earlier that I asked Anne if she was a Messiah soloist, and she said no, she was really more of a Christmas oratorio soloist. But Ben? Ben is a different story. Looking through it, and I realized that it's been almost a solid 35 years of singing Messiah. And that sort of blew my mind because it's gone by like that. But the idea of, of what was the nicest thing about it was, yes, it's the celebration of the music and, and the fact that people are arriving at this one place to participate in this extraordinary event. But there was something about indeed flying into each city because that was such a part of it. You, you, you flew in order to sing at that stage, at that later stage. And to see the city below all suddenly lit up with Christmas lights and things. And to see the world from above, that was Christmas. That, oh, Christmas is, is that. It's that color and lights. And, and then you head into the town and it's all lit up in the downtown and everybody's out skating and, and whatever. But then you realize that you just go to your hotel <laughs> and you sort of call home and whatever. So the occasion of being, you're so far away from home that occasion about then going to the concert hall, making that music, sitting there through all that and celebrating it to such a degree, uh, you know, and, and in a way you start becoming a little, um, oh, well, this is just what I do. It's, it's Messiah. I guess we go, you know, we do Messiah, we do it again. And years into it, I, I, I used to stay with a wonderful friend, a lady, Cheryl Scarth in, in California. And I was down doing one with the San Francisco Symphony one year. And she uh, came to it and then we went home. And then that night we, I was just, and I used to stay with her at her place. And she opened a bottle of wine and she started having a drink and carrying on. And then she said, I got to ask you a question. I said, what, why, what, what do you want to ask me? She said, do you really believe that stuff? And I thought, what do you, what do you mean? Do I really believe it? She says, well, she said, do you realize that all those people there really believe, do you? And I really had to think for a moment. And I thought, yes. And she said, do you really believe what you're saying? Because they believe you. And she said, I'm really interested. Like, what is that for you? And I had to think about it. And I thought, I have a feeling that I've slipped into just wrote, just doing it. So I went and did the concert the next day and I sat with my score open to the whole show 
and I, I ingested every single word. And when it was time to get up and sing, I sang it as though it was, I, I was unfolding this, this pattern of ideas and words and, and one led to the next. And if I'm saying that, what does that mean? And, and then I would look at people and, and, I, and all these faces were just, and a sea of faces like this. And I went home at that, after that concert and I felt completely changed. I don't know what happened, but I thanked her for, for reminding me the, the value of it, the importance of, of, being, of being in what you are doing, being a part of what it is. And indeed, nowadays we look at it and I'm, I'm so grateful for those opportunities to have had to sing and indeed to make a difference for all those people who year after year, it's their one, it's kind of their one night out, it's their one moment. And if you are responsible for being the one to give that, that's, as she said, that's a big response. You've got a big responsibility. <laughs> when I think about it, I have truly heard a lot of messiahs. I've sat through a lot of messiahs and some that are, uh, one might say are informed, historically informed, um, Mozart version, Baroque pitch, modern orchestras, small orchestras, big orchestras, concert halls, churches, cathedrals, um, a European, I even did it in Jerusalem. That was a very interesting day to suddenly get up and sing speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and you're looking at a room full of people in in Jerusalem. <laughs> that, that was that was almost too much for my feeble mind. But uh, and and how the and how the Israelis took the the information of Messiah, and how they responded then to the third part, which is resurrection, and how that you know. And we, we, what I've, I think in answer to your question, what is most remarkable about it that I find that, that isn't so much about what somebody doesn't know, but about what somebody discovers is that as people might know, the, the, the whole Messiah is not usually done. It's too long. It's, I mean, it's not too long. It's, it's just very long. And, and people, it's Christmas time. They have their favorites. They want the holiday chorus. They, they feel they've had their experience. That's great. It's in three parts. We don't need to be here, you know, all night. But some people feel otherwise. And indeed, there's different versions of it as well. London version, Dublin version, all these different with countertenors, with altos, with, you know, and, and there's all this informed sense about which show was done where. And, and it gets really quite remarkable. But the one that, that blew my mind was touring with Trevor Pinnock. And we did a big tour throughout uh, Italy, France, and England, I guess, and and then extended to her, the tour later to Germany in Halle, where Handel lived, where the big Handel festival is, and then in Jerusalem, uh, in Tel Aviv. Well. And Trevor's Trevor's deal was: if you want English concert to do Messiah, we you get the Messiah, which means the whole thing. So certain. Uh, venues would say, well, no, that's, we don't, we, we don't have time for that. We want, we want you and this orchestra, but we don't want the whole thing. And then he said, well, then you don't get, you don't get us. And he didn't bow down on that. He didn't back down on it. His point was the piece is a, is a perfect work 
it's a perfect bit of theater. And, and again, to be reminded, it's not called the Messiah, it's just called Messiah. <laughs> and the idea that it's in a way handles the greatest opera that, that's ever been written in a way. And if you see the nature of how one section flows to the next and the way that there's, there's temple relationships and, and, I, and, and philosophical relationships and narrative relationships and the relationship of character and, and how the, the public views the situation that's going on and how they respond and you know, the crowd, the, the chorus. Um, when, once you've done it, the whole thing and feel it paced and really see the work for what it is, you kind of can't go back. And if you start truncating it and cutting bits and moving things around, it can become terribly long because it doesn't make sense. It, it's suddenly the story, the narrative line, the emotional trajectory, it, it, it gets lost along the way and it becomes disjointed and jilted. Once you've experienced the whole thing, it's kind of hard to go back and you, and you can't wait for the next thing. And if you don't get it, you, it, it, it's like, it's a bit of a lunchbox letdown. <laughs> so if you're lucky enough to experience it in, an, in, a, in a manner in which the narrative is truly presented with a point of view that allows it to play out, it, it's hard to go back to, to anything else is what I've, what I've discovered about it. So it's kind of, it's kind of perfection in that way. One of the great challenges of being a professional singer is that it all depends on you. When you fly into a city for a concert, there is seldom an understudy of any description. It's usually just all up to you. But what happens if you get sick? I just do remember one, one rather complicated messiah where I got food poisoning and which I'd been told that people get and that's so lovely but it was in Minneapolis I think St. Paul Minneapolis and and it was with our friend Bernard Labadie and the Minneapolis Orchestra St. Paul St. Paul Chamber Orchestra what it was with and I we were having a lovely time I was on a roll it was good I was feeling confident I, I felt I was doing a good job. And then I had some oxtail soup. <laughs> and, and I remember going to Bernard after that, and it was with lunch with him. And I, and I went to him a little later on because I'd been in my bed and I came downstairs to him while he was sitting there getting ready for the concert. And I, he said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I was ashen. And I said, I am, I am so unbearably sick. I almost can't, can't comprehend of what is about to happen next, but I'm not sure that I'm up for this concert. And he said, well, we don't really have anybody who can sing for you. There is a, there is a second guy there because it was the show was being doubled with Beethoven nine. So actually the, I was doubling the Tony Dean Griffey with Beethoven nine. He was doubling me with Messiah. So that was a very nice thing. But I'm not sure that he was really there yet or was really ready to do it or, or didn't want to or whatever it was. So Bernard said, you've got to come and try at least. So I said, well, okay, here's the deal then. If I come, either you put a bucket beside me <laughs> on stage, it was in the big, beautiful cathedral in St. Paul's. Either you let me have a bucket beside me 
as, a, as an insurance policy, or whenever I'm not singing, I get to leave and I've got to go back wherever and lie down because I'm not functioning. And he said, okay, the bucket is not an option. You can, that, that doesn't look right, um, but we will let you, you can go in and on and off. So I remember girding my loins as one might say, and coming in and sitting there through the overture and thinking, I'm just not sure if I'm gonna make this. I'd never felt so ill in my life. And I stood up to sing, comfort ye. And then Every Valley, and I remember I almost lost it during the coloratura in Every Valley, but I managed to get through it. And then I very formally left. <laughs> and the show went on and I got to lie down for the rest of the half. And I remember being in a back room, moaning and groaning. And some swear words came out because I was so miserable. And it turns out I was right beside the, like, the dean's office and he was in his room. And, and I felt bad, but I, I did feel bad. And then I got to come out and the part that I got to sing was, thy rebuke hath broken his heart. He is full of heaviness. And Bernard almost started to laugh as I started singing, he is full of heaviness. He looked for some to have pity on him. And then he really started to laugh. And I thought, this is unbearable. So I started to laugh. And everyone said, but you look so gray and sweaty. And I thought, I'm absolutely dying. Okay, so we got through the concert, managed to do it. At the end of it, he comes to me and he says, you know, you should be sick more often because that was the best singing I've ever heard you do. <laughs> But it was one of truly the most miserable occasions of my life was just not sure where this was going to go. But musically, it was extraordinary. On a personal level, it was challenging. <laughs> and I'm, I'm afraid I don't ever wish something like that on my worst um, enemy. The final story from Ben and Anne concerns their two daughters and the nutcracker, a health emergency and a happy ending. Here's Ben. Like for you, Ben, when you finally got to see them dance it. Well, it was a, it was a, uh, <clears throat> it was a, um, it was a, it was, what do you call it? It was a, um, an emotional time. Let's call it that. It, it was an emotional time to go and see them because I had had to um, cut out so early. Well, I, I'd missed a lot of them growing up and that sort of thing because of seeing it the holiday time and whatever. And indeed, I was down doing a gig in San Diego and was going to miss them again. But I, I, something went haywire and I was not well and I had to come home. And I had to bail from the gig. And the bonus was that I got to come home, but I wasn't sure that I would be in a condition to attend anything that was the farthest thing in my mind. But when I was um, given a sort of clean bill of health on that evening, uh, I, the idea was, well, but the girls are doing Nutcracker tonight. And I said, are you, are you, are you kidding me? And they said, yeah, if you want to go, you just go. And I said, but wait a second, a moment ago, I thought I was like, that it was over. And now you're telling me I can go to the Nutcracker. And so, so my brother said, well, if you want to come, I've got the scooter outside and I'll just take you down. So I thought, wait a second. Okay. I was a moment ago, I was not well. And now I'm going to get on the back of a scooter and go to the Nutcracker. And they said, yep, no problem. You're totally, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with you. 
So I thought, this is, this is good news. So I got on the back of the scooter, went down, and I sat there. And when the, it started, and I'd never seen the Nutcracker. I've, I've known of it, but I'm a singer. I don't, I'm not a dancer. I, don't, I didn't go to the Nutcracker. I knew it. But this was my first time to see the whole thing. And I just about, uh, it, again, if, 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 <laughs> if heaven is on earth, that is the moment. And you're sitting there, and you're counting your lucky stars. And even though you've just compromised your entire career, you, you, you suddenly realize there's something bigger than that and it's standing on that stage, it, it, giddy with delight. It's just so true that Christmas is really about children and no matter our projects and careers, they really are the ultimate delight at Christmas time. Let's meet my next guest. Hi, I'm Tracy Dahl, a coloratura soprano. I told her she should have said the coloratura soprano because to me she is a wonderful singer, teacher, and mentor. Tracy lives in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and is on staff at the University of Manitoba, mentoring another generation of singer. Tracy has sung around the world, and I know she could have chosen a number of star-studded stories to share, but interestingly enough, she chose something closer to home and her heart. I was thinking about it, and I. You know, as many singers do, you often are involved in a lot of Christmas concerts. Um, and there have been many highlights, whether it's been doing, you know, 14 messiahs in the state of Arizona or, you know, going somewhere warm. That's always been pleasant <laughs> from a, for a Winnipeg girl. But I think probably if I'm being super honest, the ones that the Christmas concert that I would say I love the most or have remembered the most is um, one I did with my family. So when my mom and dad lived in assisted living, they had a very big, large room that they could have gatherings in. And my mom and my mother and father always had a Christmas Eve um, carol sing-along. And when they moved out of their home and they went in to assisted living, this wasn't going to happen anymore. But their family was like all of the family and practically everybody who married into the family either did sing or supported the idea of, of that and enjoyed coming and listening and supporting. So we would have these family concerts and we did them for the years that my parents lived at assisted living. And we would get together in my living room or my sister's living room and everybody would come and we'd hand out music that we had pilfered from our churches <laughs> and gone through. And we sang some really difficult stuff. Um, we didn't shy away. And we've got in the family, my niece is a music teacher, my brother-in-law is a music teacher. Um, all the girls sang. Um, and the, the children of all the, of the family sing. So we would do duets with, uh, I'd sing a duet with my niece. Uh, the three sisters would sing. We would do beautiful harmonies and one of my brother-in-law writes music. So he would write something. They did jazz because um, one of the boys was studying jazz, double bass, so we'd have that. So it was really a lovely mixed bag of the carols everybody knew, and then This Little Babe um, by Benjamin Britten. 
And, you know, and we worked hard on that. Like we actually, we enjoyed getting together. At least I know I did. Um, getting together for those evenings of practice. And, you know, we, we'd make, I'd make chili or soup and we'd sit down and everybody gather around and, and learn the music together. And we had a variety of skills for people who were readers or not readers. And we just sat in groups together so that they, the other person would learn it and assimilate it. And it was a lot of fun. And it was very rewarding because the people who lived there very much enjoyed it. It was really nice to bring it to where my parents were living and share the music as my mother would have been doing at her home all those years. Well, I was gonna say, when you listed off your family, I think there are some ringers in your family. So I'm expecting you guys sounded pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really a lot of fun. And we went through um, years of singing where Anton's voice hadn't changed, you know, and so we would do Yezu or uh, we trade off. We still would trade off up until a few years ago where um, my son, Anton, he would, uh, we would trade off on who was going to sing Amid the roses, Mary sits. We and he be his turn to do that with Jaden on violin, and then it would be my turn to do it with Jaden on violin. And um, it was a little bit of a time for the kids when they were growing up to share music with their grandparents. That you know, they weren't going out to things, so it was it was lovely. And uh, I I miss doing that. I think that that was a, a special time. I asked Tracy, what about your professional life at Christmas? Was there anything you dreaded having to sing at a Christmas concert? I think there may have been a concert maybe I turned down because I didn't like the piece of music. <laughs> I love singing the Christmas Oratorio. I love singing the Messiah. Um, but I wasn't so keen. It was one of these takeoffs on the 12 days of Christmas. And it's like, oh my gosh, nobody really wants to hear an orchestral version of this with one poor little soprano standing in there trying to sing all of that. It's just not interesting while the orchestra goes on and on, right? Because it's a showpiece for the orchestra, but it's really nothing for the singer. And it was, I thought, oh no, I just don't think I want to put on a gown for that. <laughs> It's such a funny year with COVID-19. It's going to be very strange to have a Christmas season where we're not going to concerts and, and actually making music together in the way we normally do. Have you thought at all about, like, will you be making music at home? You have a very musical family in your bubble. Do you think you'll get to make music? Uh, well, I'm sure that Anton will, will indulge his father and his mother and, and uh, help us sing some carols. Um, but... I, right now, uh, Manitoba's in um, code red and no one's allowed in your home. So um, there will be no, no singing at this point. Um, I've been asked to sing for our Christmas, Christmas Eve service, the O Holy Night. And I said, I have a piano in my living room. I can, I can sing it from my living room and we can just add it into the program. We've done that before. Well, would you like to take the opportunity to wish us all a Merry Christmas before I close this off? I would love to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and happy holidays to whichever occasion you wish to celebrate at this season. Um, for me, it's Christmas and 
I, I associate this time of year with so much music making and I hope people find ways to enjoy music in their homes, online in whatever way they can. Um, maybe they'll be in Victoria, who knows? It could be people's outside on the street still caroling at a distance, you know? Um, it, won't, it won't be minus 30 here, I suspect. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> I hope it's not minus 30. And we'll have our Spotify playlist with some of your lovely Christmas selections so people can enjoy some of your Christmas favorites too. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. This has been fun. Thank you, Tracy. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed hearing these stories about family, music making, and the holiday season. I have to say, it's inspired me to listen to some of my holiday favorites on CD this year, and I think listen a little more deeply. It also encourages me to get out our Reader's Digest Christmas album. I know it's kicking around the house somewhere, and I think we'll have a little family sing-along on Christmas Eve, a tradition from my childhood that has been lost over the years when we've been far too busy to spend time at home around the fireplace. If you haven't done so already, take a moment to read the liner notes on the webpage. It will give you the playlist that goes along with this podcast, and you'll find a few bonus stories and songs that didn't make it into the podcast. There were so many great stories. This is the final podcast for 2020. What a year it has been. So challenging, and yet... Without the pandemic, this podcast wouldn't even exist. It was conceived at the start of the pandemic as a way to bring us together through stories about music, since we couldn't gather together to make music. At Pacific Opera, we continue to look for new ways to support artists and to bring artists and music to you in the digital realm. Next year, the podcast will feature our first opera on film, Alice in the Garden, with backstage interviews. And you're going to hear about one of our new programs, bringing singers into high schools to mentor the next generation, virtually. I wish you all the best that this season can bring, and I do look forward to meeting you all again in January of 2021. I want to leave you with a few wise words about the season. In all my conversations with Ben, Anne, and Tracy, everyone struggled with how different Christmas would be this year, and what can it possibly be like when nothing about it will seem familiar. These phrases have been spinning around my brain this past week as I struggle to imagine a Christmas that will be so different from other years. Can it really be Christmas this year? Ah, then I remembered this classic story. Here's my answer. Thank you for listening. Have a very happy holiday season. Without any presents at all, he hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came, somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzle of a saw. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. 
Welcome, Christmas. Bring your cheer. Cheer to all who's far and near. Christmas Day is in our grasp, so long as we have hands to clasp. Christmas Day will always be just as long as we have we. Welcome, Christmas, while we stand, heart to heart and hand in hand.